0: You do not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all encompassing. Being accused of three disses disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful.
1: I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do
0: disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. She's a girl, so you'd be butt ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim.
1: He's a guard. He guards
0: the Queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to
1: find a common thing
2: that binds us all. Prime. Prime is the common thing.
0: See, we are all of us, (laughs) bad.
3: Welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Glad to have you all back today. I told you I wouldn't be gone long, as this is the first episode in this new release schedule for this second half of Series 4, meaning that we finally reached that bizarre moment in the show's history where I get to say that today we're going to be looking back at Series 4, Episode 9, Medium Rare. If you're a long-time listener of the podcast, which first off, let me just say thank you very much for all of your support, you will know that there have been a number of occasions on previous episodes where I've mentioned about or alluded to the Series 4 extension, and that we would cover that when the time came, which is the point in time at which we have now arrived. So far on the show, we have had three full series of eight episodes, which was always the original intention. Each series of the show was only meant to be eight episodes in length, something which I've always preferred in my dramas, that sort of eight to ten episode run, maybe 13 at a push is about the right amount in my opinion. Anything beyond that feels as though shows are perhaps spreading themselves a little thin. However, one of the reasons for this 4th series extension actually occurred away from the Oz set across state lines, following a production delay on The Sopranos as that show prepared to shoot for its upcoming third season. The first two series of that show had run from early January to early April in 1999 and 2000, however Season 3 didn't see the show return until March of 2001, following alleged production issues. Which admittedly could be any number of things, but more often than not, it ends up being a leading cast member or a group of cast members holding out for more money to return to a show once it's achieved a certain degree of success. Similar to how the cast of Friends had negotiated big money salaries in the years prior to this, and would do so again afterwards. Even at this point, The Sopranos was a huge ratings winner for HBO, with the Series 2 finale scoring an 8.97 which although I'm still not totally sure about how TV ratings are calculated in the US, I understand that to be a very good number, especially for a subscription television network like HBO. What this meant, though, was that with The Sopranos not returning until March of 2001, the HBO schedule for January and February was left with a zonking big hole that needed filling. Six Feets Under debut season was already in production but wouldn't air until June, while Sex and the City had only concluded its third season the previous October, and whose episodes also had a much shorter running time. Following the success of the miniseries The Corner between April and June of 2000, HBO had agreed to a pilot episode of The Wire, but that wouldn't arrive for another 18 months until June of 2001, and we were still more than three years away from the debut of Deadwood. So, rather than rush a new show into production, that just left Oz as the only viable option to fill the gap with storylines for Series 4B being drafted while Series 4A was still filming. But there's another twist to the tale, one that ties into the closing events of Series 4B in that it involves the filming location of Oz itself. As you've heard me mention several times throughout the podcast, the show was filmed in the old biscuit factory of Chelsea Market on 9th Avenue. Faced with not only a rushed writing schedule for these new episodes, the show was also dealt a blow when the landlord of the building rented the space to the New York One Cable News station negotiating a 10-year lease as opposed to the annual one that they had previously with Oz. According to Lauren David Pedden's article and interview with Tom Fontana in the July 15, 2001 edition of the New York Times, Fontana states, quote, The landlord of Chelsea Market on Ninth Avenue had not given the show's producers the option of renegotiating their lease. It was a lot of space, and he rented it to New York One, the cable news station, for 10 years because we could only do a yearly lease. He didn't even tell me, I found out by reading about it in The Villager. End quote. So, tasked with writing, producing, and filming eight more episodes against a ticking clock at your primary filming location, this meant that, according to cast member James Palacio, Oz was back filming for Series 4B only one month after production on Series 4A had wrapped, resulting in a number of instances in which the show was still being written, and in some cases rewritten, once filming had gotten underway, something which placed an incredible amount of pressure on the show and something which will play a huge factor in the overall quality of these next few episodes. Holding an 8.4 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana and Sunil Neha, with the teleplay also being written by Tom Fontana, while Adam Bernstein and Sean Weissel have also joined the show as producers for this block of episodes. The episode was directed by Alex Zakruski, who is also credited as the director of photography for the episode. Beginning his career as a camera operator in 1986 on the movie Avenging Force, Alex also worked as a cinematographer on a number of documentaries, including The Cocaine War Lost in Bolivia, What's Ailing Medicine, and My Father's Garden. Moving into TV in 1995, Alex was credited as a co-director of photography during the third season of Homicide Life on the Street, and earned over 50 additional credits on the show until 1999. During this time, Alex also worked on Oz as a camera operator during the show's first series, where he also gained further Director of Photography credits. In 2000, Alex directed one episode of UPN's The Beat, however the episode never aired due to the early cancellation of the show, so this is his first aired foray into the world of directing. With the show returning earlier than usual, this also marks the latest instance in which the show has moved time slots moving to Sunday nights from its previous Wednesday night slot, which it had held since the start of Series 3. The episode originally aired on January 7th, 2001, a day on which a joint session of Congress met to clarify electoral results for all 50 states as well as the District of Columbia following a number of recounts of the 2000 US presidential election, which saw George W. Bush named the 46th President of the United States in controversial fashion. That same day, it was acknowledged that Linda Chavez, The Labour Secretary-designate of President-elect Bush's transition team had provided housing and financial aid to an illegal immigrant. While in New York City, Extreme Championship Wrestling produced its final pay-per-view card, producing its third annual Guilty as Charged event, where it packed a reported attendance of 2,500 into the Hammerstein Ballroom.
0: Oz. The name on the street for the Oswald State Correctional Facility Level 4. Now in Oz, our entire day is structured. We know when we'll eat, sleep, work, when we'll have free time. Now, given a man who's locked up free time, it's a joke. Because there are still all kinds of restrictions as to what you can and cannot do. Some people try to better themselves by reading or exercise. Some pray. Some plop. Some Just watch TV.
2: Live from Burbank Studios in Burbank, California, it's time to play Obsturendi!
3: Kick off with Act 1 in which Augustus, along with his tradition of telling us what Oz's name on the street is, tells us how an inmate's entire day is structured, saying that they know exactly when they'll eat, sleep, work, as well as having the ironically named free time, which Augustus even calls a joke, and how even though a man is locked up, there are still all kinds of restrictions that they have to follow. He says that some people try to better themselves, while others, whether that's by reading or praying, may begin to hatch a plot, and then there are those that will just watch TV. The whole thing plays out with the return of Augustus in his box, although he is still firmly on the ground, they haven't returned to having it spinning around just yet, and we also see it fade away as M-City begins to fill up with returning inmates from before Quan's regime, and it all seems to resemble the M-City of old, now that six months have passed since we were last there. Numerous inmates, including Morales, Jazz, and Chucky, who have all returned to M-City from Unit B, are sat watching the TV in which we see the game show Up Your Ante, another invention for the show much like how Miss Sally's schoolyard was as a way of avoiding having to pay for expensive footage from elsewhere. The announcer here is the voice of famed NBC announcer Don Pardo, the voice of a number of game shows including The Price is Right, Jackpot, and Winning Streak, as well as being the voice of the NBC Nightly News, 38 seasons of Saturday Night Live. Our host, Gordon Elliott, playing himself, introduces us to that day's contestant John Carpenter, who has been helped through the game by celebrity guest Ertha Kitt. I'm not going to do full introductions for these folks, as they only appear for a matter of seconds, but we will see Gordon Elliott a few times this series. Born September 30th 1956 in Everton, England, Gordon moved with his family at a young age to Lewisham in New South Wales, Australia. While studying for a law degree at Sydney University, Gordon also worked part-time on local radio. Splitting his time between Australia and America in early media jobs, Gordon worked as a substitute host on Casey Kasem's American Top 40 in 1979, the youngest person to do so at the time. He would return to host again in 1980, before eventually transitioning to TV as a host of Good Morning Australia on Network 10 between 1981 and 1987. Gordon also worked as a feature reporter on A Current Affair, as well as WNYW's Good Day New York. In 1990, Gordon hosted the game show to Tell the Truth for two months, before returning to news broadcasting in Australia on the country's edition of Hard Copy. In 1994, Gordon returned to the US to present The Gordon Elliott Show, a daytime tabloid talk show which operated out of New York, and aired across the country in syndication until 1997, while in 1999 he founded his production company, follow productions. Being something of a foodie, Gordon also acted as host for episodes of Iron Chef, Doorknock Dinners, and Follow That Food, while in 2000 he was the host for It's Your Chance of a Lifetime, a show fuelled by the worldwide success of rival game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, before appearing here on Oz. Speaking of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, is here where we need to talk about this scene's other guest star, John Carpenter. Born January 16, 1948 in Caffage, New York, John Carpenter released his first short film, Captain Voyeur, in 1969, where he... Wait a minute, this isn't John Carpenter, the influential filmmaker at all, is it? No, this is his namesake, who was born December 24th, 1967, in Northampton, Massachusetts, who on November 19th, 1999, became the first player in the world to win the top prize on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Answering his way to the final question, using none of the show's lifelines, Carpenter decided to use his phone-a-friend on the final question to call his father. Rather than ask for help, Carpenter, in a clip that soon went the early noughties version of Viral, told his father that he was about to win the game and claim the $1 million prize. Shortly after his win, Carpenter appeared as himself in a sketch on Saturday Night Live, as well as appearing on talk shows such as Good Morning America, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and Live with Regis and Kathy Lee. Regis Philbin, having been the host of the U.S. version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire at the time of Carpenter's win, born January 17, 1927, Ethel Kitt began her Broadway career in 1945, appearing as a dancer in Blue Holiday at the Blasco Theater in May, and would also appear in Carib Song at the Adelphi Theater from September through October. In 1950, she was given her first starring role as Helen of Troy in Orson Welles' version of Dr. Faustus, and in 1952 she was cast in New Face of 1952, a musical review show which ran at the Royal Theatre for 365 performances, where she performed the songs Uskadara, Se and Santa Baby, the song for which Kit is perhaps best known, and which was the biggest-selling Christmas song of 1953, despite being banned in a number of southern states due to its lyrical content. Following an alleged affair with Orson Welles in 1957, something which Kit denied in a 2001 interview, she appeared in the movies The Mark of the Hawk in 1957, and St. Louis Blues and Anna Lacasta in 1958. Working consistently throughout the 1950s and 60s as a recording artist as well as on the Broadway stage, Kit released her autobiography Thursday's Child in 1956, and also helped to open the Circle Star Theatre in San Carlos, California in 1964 while in 1967 she appeared as Catwoman in the third season of Batman, replacing Julie Newmar in the role. No stranger to controversy, in 1968 Kit encountered a substantial setback to her career following a White House luncheon in which Kit made several anti-war statements to First Lady Bird Johnson with regards to the war in Vietnam. It wasn't until the 1980s when Kit's career began to get back on track following the release of Where Is My Man, with the song appearing in the top 40 singles chart in the UK, and the Top 10 Billboard Dance Chart in the US, which also gave Kit her first gold record. Appearing mostly in minor or guest-starring roles throughout the rest of the century, Kit won an Annie Award in 2000 for her role as Yzma in Disney's The Emperor's New Groove, before appearing here on Oz. The guys get into an argument about the quiz show Question, in which they have to identify what a Van Dyke beard looks like, with Jazz not understanding the hint of who Rob Petrie is which I'll be honest, I didn't know either, so I had to look it up, and it is the character played by Dick Van Dyke on The Dick Van Dyke Show. While Poet is desperate to find out the answer, Murphy calls for the count and the TV is switched off, much to the annoyance of everyone watching, especially Keller, who lets out his inner poly Walnuts in
2: response.
3: The sub-fun nods here to how Adebisi's presence remains in Oz despite us being six months on from his death with Cyril wearing Adebisi's yellow and black striped sock like a sock puppet, something which we'll come back to another time, while Ryan is wearing one of Adebisi's beanies in the same way that Adebisi would. So while things appear to be getting back to normal, or whatever is considered normal for Oz, there is still this lingering presence of what was there before that still haunts the unit. Cut to Leo's office, where he is meeting with Lisa Logan, was there to meet with Leo with regards to filming one of those America's Toughest Prisons type things for TV. She explains that she works for Jack Eldridge, who Leo admits to being a big fan of because he's a ball buster, and he says that he really liked the piece they did on heating oil and how they tagged that corporate clown, which seemed a little out of character for Leo considering that he's previously been presented as such a staunch Republican. That's not to say that all Republicans have a hard-on for corporate America, obviously, but between Leo and McManus, you would think that it would be McManus that would be the more anti-corporate out of the two. Despite his admission to liking the way that Jack took that guy down, Leo says that he doesn't want to be on the end of a similar grilling, and denies the request to film. Lisa asks what Leo has to hide, but he tells her nothing, although he does admit that in the four years since the riot that life has been tough, but he also says that attitudes are starting to settle back down, and that bringing in the TV cameras could stir up a situation that he doesn't need. Lisa had apparently foreseen that this might happen, and it turns out that she's already got the okay from the commissioner to do the piece. Leo grabs the phone and says that he'll call Devlin to get it shut down, but Lisa has spoken to him already as well, and he has also agreed to allow them to film. Leo slams the phone down in anger and asks if she already had permission, then why has she come to ask him? Lisa saying that she wanted to get his honest reaction. While the last episode saw us say our goodbyes to Adawali in the role of Adebisi, this is also a black armband day as any Hudson has shaved off his moustache for this season, which I've got to say I'm a little bummed out by. Leo always looked very dashing with that and I'm not a fan of this clean shaven look on him at all. Cut to a staff meeting where Leo is explaining to everyone how the filming process is going to work, saying that first they'll do an overview of Life at Oz before moving on to following a new arrival, with the final part being Jack spending the night in a cell, something which McManus doesn't seem too sure about even at this early stage. Lepresti, on the other hand, is giddy with excitement, asking when is Jack going to get there, even referring to him as the great man. Unfortunately, Lepresti is going to have to wait to meet his hero, as Jack won't be there until the day he's actually set to film. Until then, it'll just be Lisa filming preliminary interviews with inmates, as well as some of the staff. She says that the goal of the piece is to show the audience how difficult the job at Oz actually is, as well as giving 60 Minutes a kick in the ass. 60 Minutes being one of America's longest-running news magazine shows, first airing in 1968, and which is still running today. Romanus gives Leo a look which seems to question the motives of the show, but Leo doesn't offer much of a response, having already had people go over his head to get permission to film, as he then dismisses the meeting. Lisa Logan is played by the guest-starring Ali Sheedy. Born Alexandra Elizabeth Sheedy on June 13, 1962 and a native New Yorker, Ali attended the American Ballet Theatre at the age of six, with the intention to make dancing her full-time career. However, after attending Bank Street School for Children and then writing her first book, She Was Nice to Mice, at the age of 12, Ali began studying under acting teacher Harold Guskin in the mid-1970s. Much like our earlier guest stars, Ali is no stranger to the game show world, appearing on To Tell the Truth in 1975. After graduating from Columbia Grammar and Preparatory School in 1980, Ali relocated to Los Angeles, enrolling in the drama department at the University of Southern California, where she balanced her fledgling acting career alongside studying for a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. After appearing in a number of local stage productions, Allie made her TV acting debut in CBS Afternoon Playhouse, as well as appearing in the TV movies The Best Little Girl in the World, The Day the Loving Stopped, and Splendour in the Grass. In 1982, Allie would earn credits for Chicago Story and *Sent Elsewhere, while in 1983 she would appear in a recurring role on Hill Street Blues. That same year, Allie also earned her first feature film credits appearing in Bad Boys, not to be confused with the Michael Bay movie from the mid-90s, with her big break coming for her role as Jennifer Mack in War Games, for which she received a Saturn Awards nomination for Best Actress, and a nomination for Best Young Motion Picture Actress in a Feature Film at the Young Artist Awards. Also in 1983, Ali appeared in the TV movie Deadly Lessons, which would be her last TV role for a number of years, as in 1985 she appeared in both The Breakfast Club, playing Alison Reynolds, aka The Basket Case, and St. Elmo's Fire, playing the role of Leslie Hunter. While The Breakfast Club is probably considered the more successful of the two movies, grossing close to $58 million against a $1 million production budget, both films are quintessential 1980s movies, especially those featuring the so-called Brat Pack of actors that appeared across both films. Around this time, Ali dated Bon Jovi guitarist Richie Sambora, a relationship which Ali alleges led to a number of her issues with drugs during the decade, a claim which Mr Sambora has denied. Following a stint in the Hazelden Foundation rehab facility, Ali continued to act in movies for the remainder of the 1980s, with appearances for 1985's Twice in a Lifetime, 1986's Short Circuit, as well as an uncredited appearance for its 1988 sequel, Short Circuit 2, and closed out the decade in Heart of Dixie in 1989. In 1990, Ali returned to TV, appearing in the TV movie The Lost Capone, while on film she appeared in Fear in 1990, 1991's Only the Lonely, and had a cameo role as an airport worker in 1992's Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Also in 1992, Ali married her first husband and fellow Oz alumni David Lansbury, Will you remember playing the role of Robert Sipple back in Series 2, with the last time we saw him being the time that he was being nailed to the gym floor crucifixion style by Schillinger and the other Nazis. Throughout the 90s, Ali earned credits on TV for a number of TV movies, as well as shows such as Red Shoe Diaries, The Hidden Room, and The Outer Limits, as well as earning credits on movies including Man's Best Friend, Amnesia, Highball, High Art, The Autumn Heart, and Advice from a Caterpillar, before appearing here on Oz. For the first time in a long time, Leo addresses the inmates, informing them of the guests that they'll be having at Oz over the next few days.
2: Tomorrow, and for several days, a television crew will be walking the halls, taping a piece on Oz for their news magazine. Yeah! Quiet down. Quiet. Now I know, when the cameras are rolling, you guys will run through your bag of tricks, plead innocent, run scams, cry foul, or whatever else you think is going to get you some attention. Get your faces on TV. But let me warn you, when those cameras are gone, I'll still be here. When the story airs, I will be watching. And I won't forget what you say or what you do. That is all."
3: Later in the day, Murphy calls lights out as everybody beds down for the night, as we head into Morales' pod, which he's back sharing with Chico, who has also made his return to MC. Morales is thinking about how he can use the presence of the film crew to their advantage, and that he has to do something, telling Chico that they're only going to use the best stuff. Chico asks him whether or not he's going to make something up to improve his chances, Morales saying that he can't tell them the truth, but also mentioning that he doesn't want to be on camera either. Morales saying that he can't let his matinee idol looks go to waste. See, I was right about that moustache. That gets a laugh out of Chico. Morales smacking the underside of Chico's mattress, not taking kindly to being insulted, as we cut across the unit to Said and Arif's pod, where Arif is asking whether or not Saeed plans to go on camera, Said telling him yes because he has a lot to say about the conditions in Oz. The topic of conversation soon turns to Adebisi, and what Saeed plans to do if asked about his killing, as Saeed goes into full-blown exposition mode, explaining that the courts found him innocent of Adebisi's death by way of self-defence, and how McMahon has even testified on his behalf, something which would probably have never happened a couple of years previously. Of course, due to the rushed production schedule of this batch of episodes, something which will become a common theme as we go through them, We don't get to see that play out, which is a shame, because that storyline would have probably had some decent mileage in it had it happened under normal circumstances. Arif still seems concerned, though, saying that the reporters are bound to dig up old bones, believing that they'll do so with the intention of making the Muslims look bad. Saeed tells him that he isn't afraid, however, as we cut across to Cyril and Ryan's pod where Ryan is brushing his teeth, with Cyril asking about them being on TV. Ryan, however, says that only he is going to be on camera, telling Cyril that if he sees a camera that he needs to duck out of sight. When Cyril asks him why, Ryan asks him about whether or not he remembers Jack Eldridge. Surprisingly enough, brain-damaged Cyril doesn't instantly remember something that happened not only a number of years ago, but also something that happened prior to his accident, as Ryan tells him that Jack fucked them over really bad, although he's a little light on the details as he also tells Cyril that this might be their chance to get even with him. The two of them get ready for bed as we cut to the crime flashback of... Oh no. OH NO! Hey girl!
0: number 01W711, Omar White. Convicted January 4th, 2001. Murder in the first degree. Sentence, 75 years. Up for parole,
3: in 20. Well, he's here. I knew the day would eventually arrive where we had to say hello to Omar White, who is played here by Michael Wright. I knew it was coming, but that doesn't make it any easier. Born April 30th 1956 in New York City, Michael made his acting debut appearing in the 1979 film The Wanderers, playing the role of Clinton, the leader of the Dell Bombers gang. After appearing in various TV movies in the early 80s, Michael's big break came in 1983 when he landed the role of Elias Taylor on the TV miniseries V, which also featured Oz alumni George Morfogian. Michael would reprise the role of Elias in V, The Final Battle, which was broadcast in May of 1984, as well as 13 episodes of the VTV series, which began in October that same year. In 1987, Michael would appear on TV during the third season of Miami Vice, as well as the movies The Principal and Bedtime Eyes. In 1991, Michael starred alongside Oz alumni Leon and O.L. Duke in Robert Townsend's The Five Heartbeats a film based loosely on the careers of The Temptations, The Four Tops, and Sam Cooke, among others. Despite not being well-received by critics, the film grossed approximately $8.5 million at the US box office, and has since gained a following through numerous home video releases. The musical performances used in the film did receive some high praise, however, Michael's singing parts as Eddie King Jr. were performed by Marvin Jr. of the Dells. In 1993, Michael starred alongside Wesley Snipes in the movie Sugar Hill, while in 1994 he appeared as Charlie in Confessions of a Hitman. In 1996, Michael returned to TV appearing in New York Undercover, before returning to the movie screen in 1996's The Cottonwood and Money Talks in 1997. Michael earned minor credits for the films Point Blank and Rage in 1998 and 1999 respectively, before appearing here on Oz. So we join Omar down in the holding area, which, as we're told by Murphy, is actually named Receiving and Discharge, where he's talking with another new inmate about Lisa who stood across the way with Murphy and the camera crew. Murphy is explaining to a researcher about the purpose of the area, and the researcher is frantically jotting everything down in a notepad. Lisa asks which inmate is Omar, as Murphy calls him over. Murphy explains to Omar about the camera crew having been given authorization to follow him around on his first day, and asks if Omar has any issues with that, but Omar seems more taken with the fact that he's going to be on TV. Lisa asks Omar about his conviction and whether or not she has the information correct, but Omar is quick to say that he didn't even know the woman and asks why he would shoot her. Showing that she's done her research, Lisa mentions about the woman being the prime witness at Omar's cousin's murder trial, as we see Omar being filmed through the news team's camera, indicated by the frame lines and different lighting. Lisa says that Omar made a mistake by not killing the little girl from the flashback too, which is massively unprofessional, actively telling someone that they should have killed not only a second person, but a young child. Very weird bit of dialogue from Lisa there. As Omar mumbles away about what Lisa has said, Murphy tells him to get back in line and calls him a mutt, something which Omar doesn't take kindly to. He tries to get in Murphy's face, but Murphy isn't having any of it. He's dealt with the likes of Omar before. He's not going to be phased by this, and he calls for Jake and Willard to escort Omar back to the line, and tells Omar to get out of his face, as Omar is escorted away, yelling and flailing about. That was a great showing of power from Murphy there, and he may have been playing up to the cameras a little bit, but the way that he wasn't taking any of Omar's shit and just stood there with his hands on his hips? Great stuff there from Murphy. The researcher asks Murphy about Oz having 500 new arrivals every week, which Murphy indicates as being accurate, and when asked about how many are released, he simply answers that it isn't enough. 500 new arrivals every week would mean that Oz takes 26,000 new prisoners each year, a number which when you consider that the majority of inmates are doing multi-year stretches cannot possibly be accurate. To put that into perspective, Oz having that kind of population would mean that they have nearly 12 times the capacity of the Attica Correctional Facility, four times that of Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola and the largest prison in the US, and would be able to fill New York's Madison Square Garden, and even then 5,000 inmates would have to stay behind Oz. If you were to want to take every inmate out to fill a stadium, you could take them nearly 3,000 miles cross-country to Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, California to watch the LA Galaxy play. So Murphy continues the tour by taking the crew through M-City, describing it as an experimental cell block set up by McManus five years ago, and explains about how the inmates are given more leeway than the rest of Oz, as Liam Meany, who we're seeing for the first time and is played by Seth William Meir, passes by the camera giving it the fingers. Jazz also asks Lisa if she wants a little head as he takes out little Jazz and waves him around, marking what I think is the third time that we've seen Evan Seinfeld's penis on the show. Murphy tells Jazz to move along, but Lisa doesn't seem overly phased by it, although she does look the other way before mentioning that the first person she's would like to speak to is Beecher. Murphy leads her off to speak with him, as we cut to the classroom where Lisa is explaining to Beecher how the interview will work and we get a few more of those camera crew POV shots with the frame lines, something which we'll see quite a lot of in this episode. The reason for that, I'm assuming, is due to the faster production cycle on this episode. As I mentioned at the beginning, the show was back in production very quickly after wrapping the first batch of episodes so they could get the second lot done before losing their filming location, and as a result, the episodes didn't have the usual amount of time that they would have done for the direction to be decided upon. Doing this kind of shot through the news crew's cameras essentially allowed for the camera to be constantly rolling, as though were being operated freehand, rather than any tracking devices or frames. Being more freehand meant that the crew could do a take and then bang, do another one, bang, do another one, and so on and so on. It does kind of work, as you get a mixture between the kind of shots and look that we've become familiar with on the show. The whole thing does still look like an episode of ours. yet we also see things differently from the point of view of the people who have come in from the outside world, a world which at this time is constantly changing beyond the world within ours. There's a bit of confusion about whether the camera is on or not between Lisa and Beecher, and she says that if he wants they can turn it off, but Beecher tells her that he doesn't care as the interview gets underway. Lisa mentions Beecher's conviction asks how being in prison has changed him, but she also mentions that he was a successful lawyer with two children. We've spoken before about Beecher having three children, Holly, Gary, and baby Harry, but that line there implies that Harry wasn't alive when Beecher was sent to Oz, something which has had fans theorising that Harry was conceived during Beecher's conjugal visit with Genevieve back in episode 2. However, this led to me taking another trip back to a previous episode, And in Episode 2, Visits, Conjugal and Otherwise, Genevieve clearly says...
1: Holly made a painting for you, but I left it in my purse. The guard asked me about explosives and I completely forgot about the painting. It's of our house. Holly and uh, Gary are standing out front and I'm holding the baby.
3: So clearly that line is a mistake, and we can safely say that the mystery of Harry Beecher's conception has now been solved. As for how prison has changed him, Beecher doesn't offer much of an answer as Lisa asked for him to describe some of his experiences, Beecher comparing it to the Book of Job. Reaching into the Book of Callbacks, Lisa mentions about Beecher having both his arms and legs broken, as well as being stabbed, and how Beecher tied down a fellow inmate and defecated on his face, asking whether or not that's what it takes to survive. Beecher looks shocked hearing about his many escapades, as Murphy, who's in the background overseeing the interview, looks a little uncomfortable too almost as if he knows that this whole thing is going to bite them in the ass, as Lisa has clearly done her homework. Answering a question, Beecher tells her that he isn't the man that he once was, or perhaps more accurately, he's maybe the man he always was and never known, as Lisa mentions about all the incidents she mentioned previously involving either Schillinger, Lisa being the latest person to mispronounce his name, or Keller, or sometimes even both of them, and asks Beecher to tell her about his relationship with them. Beecher sarcastically tells her that they sing in the choir together, as a fight down on the ground floor takes the attention away from the interview. Again, we see this play out through the news camera's point of view, which would have allowed for this part of the scene to have had a number of takes occur relatively quickly. Lisa asks Beecher what's likely to have caused the fight, Beecher telling her that it's likely an issue to do with drugs, either someone stole or someone owes. With the fight broken up, Lisa continues her interviews, this time meeting with Keller.
2: So, are there a lot of drugs in Oswald?
0: Define a lot.
3: How many
2: people in this unit use heroin on a regular basis? I don't know. One in two, one in three, one in twenty. I don't know. Okay, how about sex?
1: Is that an invitation?
2: Right. Is there a lot of homosexual activity?
1: Well, by homosexual, do you mean deep-rooted love of one man for another, or guys fucking guys in the ass? Ass-fucking. Shit happens.
2: And the authorities...
1: Frown on it. But they do their darndest to stop it.
2: As they do on the drug take. Yes. And have you. What? Fucked a guy up the ass. Gotten fucked.
0: Well, if I had, why would I say so to you?
2: Tobias speecher. What about him? I don't know, you tell me. We
1: sing in the choir together.
3: I mentioned earlier that telling Omar that he should have killed a child was unprofessional, but I have to admit that I do like Lisa's sassiness during this interview with Keller. She isn't intimidated by him in the slightest, nor does she fall under his charismatic spell like so many have before. I did also like Keller miming working out the equation when trying to figure out the number of people that do drugs, only to then at the end just say, I don't know. Later in the day, the camera crew are filming what I can best describe as additional footage the kind of stuff that they can insert into the report to break things up. But Boosmalis seems uncomfortable being filmed as he and Rebido sit at the table playing cards, saying that he's so nervous he can't even shuffle the deck. Continuing to look back and forth at the camera, Boosmalis asks if he looks okay, Rebido saying, you look like you. Boosmalis is answering with a, oh shit, which was a really funny line, and it's great to see these two back together. Boosmalis says that when he saw himself on TV after the escape, he couldn't believe how bad he looked, saying that his skin was grey, as Lisa comes over to talk to them about some background info on Beecher and Schillinger. Showing himself to not be put out by the intrusion at all, Boosmalis rises to his feet and shouts GET THE FUCK AWAY FROM ME right into the camera, Murphy telling him to relax and leading the crew away. Showing that Boosmalis handled that very well, Rebido tells him, THAT'S NICE! Now all of America's going to see you acting like an asshole. as Keller passes in the background heading towards Beecher's pod, our camera following him as he enters. Beecher, who's laid on the top bunk reading a book, although he's bent the cover round so that the show doesn't have to clear the book with legal, asks Keller what he wants, Keller saying that Lisa, describing her as the news bitch, was asking a lot of questions and wants to know what Beecher told her. Beecher just tells Keller to get the fuck out and tries to go back to his reading but Keller starts to caress his hand, saying that if he tells her anything about them, or anything about anything for that matter, but he doesn't actually get to finish his point as Beecher pulls his hand away asking what are you going to do, getting down from his bunk and right in Keller's face. Before anything can happen between the two, a shakedown is called, Keller telling Beecher that he'll see him later as he heads out at the pod we see a lovely German Shepherd being used in M-City as the crew films an inmate being searched by a CO as well as a CO searching a pod, and another finding some drugs hidden in the socks of another inmate, known simply as Briggs. Keller gives the camera a look as if to say, can you believe that? As battery low flashes up and some static appears to help us cut away to the cafeteria, where Sister Pete is holding a drug counselling meeting. Following the conversation in the last episode, the one in which Pete told Keller about God choosing them, she seems to have had a change of heart about allowing him back into the sessions, as Keller is explaining that he thinks he takes drugs because he knows that they're destructive and how he feels unworthy of love. But Beecher calls that a load of shit, accusing Keller of being all sincere and cuddly because the cameras are there filming and calls him a poser. Keller tells him to shut up as Ryan tells him the same thing and that Beecher is spoiling it for everyone. Beecher mentions about the two of them being butt-buddies now, asking when did that happen, and who died. That nearly leads to a fight between the three of them, but Pete gets in the way and demands that the camera be turned off, which they do eventually comply with. When Sister Pete gets her pointy finger out, you do as she says. Lisa then interviews Pete in her office, mentioning about the bad blood between Beecher and Keller, with Pete mentioning that there's been a lot of spilled blood along the way. Lisa asks her why she thinks that is, as Pete explains that the men in Oz are very distressed, whether that be mentally, physically, or morally. Lisa mentions about Keller being a sexual predator, and asks whether or not that factors into his problems with Beecher, but Pete says that she isn't comfortable talking about specific cases, as Lisa switches the conversation about whether or not Pete has ever been sexually threatened by any of the inmates. Pete tells her no, but there's a definite hint of hesitation in her voice as we cut to the washroom where Ryan meets up with Keller asking about what they're going to do about Beecher, saying that he nearly went public about them killing Shem and Mondo. Keller doesn't seem concerned, though, thinking that Beecher is just playing around and will never actually spill the beans, thinking of it as being Beecher's way of showing him that he still loves him. Ryan says that Keller and Beecher are fucked up and goes to leave, but Keller grabs Ryan by the arm and we get what I'm dubbing the tattoo face-off, as Keller tells Ryan not to hurt Beecher, saying that if he does, then he's going to have to hurt Ryan. Ryan tells Keller, who he once again refers to as K-Boy, not to make any threats, as it might put him in a bad mood as he then leaves the room. I get what they're going for with this whole K-Boy nickname, in that it sounds a bit like Gay Boy, but it's just falling a little flat for my liking. It's not clever, it's just a bit shit. The talk continues for the news team as Murphy takes them down to Unit B. Robson taking a particular liking to Lisa when she comes through the gate. Murphy describes Unit B as your typical cell block and calls Schillinger over for his interview, Robson taking his chance to speak with Lisa, saying that he gives good story, as she humours him, telling him, eh, maybe later. Lisa interviews Schillinger and asks him about being a white supremacist, as Schillinger says that people in the media love to label people like him, and that he knows that no matter what he says, they'll edit it to make him look like some kind of monster something which Schillinger denies being, saying that he's a widower whose first son died tragically. Which I'm not sure if that's a botched line or not, I was always under the impression that Andrew was the younger of the Schillinger boys. He mentions that he's soon going to be a grandpa, and then engages his patriotic side saying that he believes in America and God, and asks whether or not that sounds evil before looking directly into the camera. JK is great here, as he always is, and we've seen this flag-waving side of it before, right back at the start of the show, and it was here that I got to thinking about where his political views would lie today. Assuming that he was able to, I imagine he would have definitely voted for Trump, but I don't think he would have gone full conspiracy theorist and bought into the whole QAnon thing. I don't think he's that much of an idiot. I thought the touch of Robson watching on in quiet awe was quite nicely done too, and reinforces Schillinger still having some element of leadership about him. Lisa, however, mentions about Hank being accused of kidnapping Beach's children and murdering Gary, and how the FBI believe that Schillinger orchestrated the crime, saying that that sounds pretty evil to her. Schillinger covers the camera with his hand and tells Lisa that she doesn't want to be having opinions that she couldn't possibly understand. Lisa saying that if she didn't think that Schillinger was such a fine upstanding citizen, she might consider that a threat, as Schillinger removes his hand from the camera and sits back in his seat, and although he gives a look that implies there is a real threat, he realises that Lisa isn't intimidated by him, so it looks like he's going to have to let this one go. Interrupting the interview, Leroy comes over and says that he has something to tell the crew, and calls Schillinger a pussy. He tries to walk away having gotten his barb in, but he walks right into Robson and a fight breaks out between them, as the news crew scrambles to get every bit of footage that they can, as Murphy tells them to shut the cameras off. Lisa tells them to keep shooting, but they're shepherded out of Unit B and only able to get footage from a distance. Back in the holding area, the researcher, who I believe goes by the name of Horowitz and is played by Justin Hagen, asks Lisa whether she thinks the Beecher story has any legs. Lisa saying that she does, reckoning that the less people are willing to say, the better the story, and that she just has to find a way in. Murphy explains about the inmates being given their number and being assigned to a unit, as Lisa asks about Omar being sent to MC, as we then see footage of Omar arriving at his pod where he's going to be sharing with Augustus. As Omar and Augustus get acquainted, Omar unleashes his homophobic side while trying to score some tits.
0: Oh you or huh? No, I'm physically challenged. Whatever. You gang tiss. No. I don't do drugs no more. What, well, you, you ain't no faggot or nothing, huh? No. Thank God for that. <sighs> Can't stand no motherfucking faggots.
3: Drive me crazy. We we'll get a quick scene of Murphy showing Lisa that the lights out part of the routine before cutting to McManus' office where Murphy joins McManus and Leo in a belt of scotch, McManus asking whether or not the Fourth Estate has gone, the Fourth Estate being a term used to refer to the press and media. Also a bit of seed planting going on in this scene for a storyline involving Leo for this series, which we'll cover in due course. Leo asks if there have been any problems as Murphy tells them about the minor skirmish in M-City and the major battle they had in Unit B. I love his use of skirmish and battle to differentiate between the two. McManus asks whether or not they got the incidents on tape, but Murphy assures them that both instances were over in a flash, Leo explaining that he doesn't care if the prisoners look bad, which, let's be honest, is to be expected, he's more concerned about how they come across. Murphy, however, says that Lisa seems more focused on Beecher and his story, something which McManus calls a cautionary tale, as Leo says that they need to hope that she doesn't dig too deep, and that he wouldn't want her uncovering any skeletons, McManus asking whether or not he's referring to Adebisi with Leo saying among others as he takes a swig of his whiskey. Although it's a very quick scene, I quite like this as having three of the top brass, Leo, McManus and Murphy, come together like this to have a drink together showed a moment of unity that we rarely see. We've had moments where we see them in the staff room together, or staff meetings in the library, but it's actually quite rare that we get to see the staff away from the inmates actually being able to unwind somewhat. It was also really good to see that the issues that existed between all three of them in the last batch of episodes appear to have been completely resolved now, especially the ones between McManus and Leo, who on the surface of things appear to be not only getting M-City, but Oz as a whole back on track. We get an Augustus vignette in which he says that his Uncle Bilbo once said that television is a medium rarely well done. Well, he says that his Uncle Bilbo said it, but it was most likely said by someone else first. But it was Bilbo that first said it to Augustus. He says that he loves watching the news on TV, sometimes he's even switching back and forth between the stations in the hope of catching the same story, and how each show tells the story in a different way. ABC might leave out a fact that CBS might make a big deal out of, while CBS might also interview an expert who completely disagrees with the one that NBC has, and how NBC might go in-depth while ABC might give the same story five seconds of airtime, and that if he catches all three versions, then maybe by combining them together he might get a little taste of the truth. That quote about television being a rarely well-done medium doesn't appear to be a direct quote. Some places attribute it to being coined by Fred Waring in a Chicago Sunday Tribune article from 1949, while others have variations of it being uttered by comedian Fred Allen in 1950, while others are under the impression that it was uttered by Ernie Kovacs. It's a new day, yes it is, as the lights come on in M-City and Menio calls for the count as we see Cyril make his way out of his pod, as well as the other inmates around the unit. We hear some numbers being called for the count, one of which is 96J552. That number has been uttered before, back in Series 2, Episode 7, where it corresponded to Chico, although that J will change to a G sometime in the future. Other numbers called out include 92M220, which is the number for Jorge Vasquez, and why it's not a V I don't know, while 88P728 doesn't seem to correspond to anyone in particular, probably just a line to fill the dead air. Omar stumbles out of his pod, looking a little worse for wear and possibly going through the early stages of drug withdrawal, as Ryan notices him from the railing above, and has seemingly spotted himself an opportunity. They meet up later on after Omar tries to score some tits from some other inmates, one of which is Briggs, who had his confiscated in the shakedown earlier so why hasn't he been taken to the hole, or something like others have been before? Ryan sees that Omar isn't having much luck getting hold of the good stuff, and says that Omar is looking a little crispy. Omar asks if Ryan can help him get hold of some tits, but Ryan says that time's are lean right now, and that the Hacks are doing a bang-up job on keeping the drugs out of Oz. I mean, not that good a job, as they caught someone earlier on in the shakedown, but compared to previous times, the amount of drugs appear to have dramatically reduced. Ryan does say, though, that if you know the right person, you can still get hold of some, and he wishes Omar a good day as he goes to leave. But Omar pulls him back and says that he's been to everyone in the unit, and they're under the impression that he's undercover, and as a result is having little luck in getting hold of anything. As if by magic, indicated by a well-timed abracadabra, Ryan produces some drugs and gives them to Omar, who starts to unravel the packet. He asks what Ryan wants in exchange, telling him that he isn't going to suck his dick or anything like that, but Ryan makes it clear that he doesn't swing that way, and says that he might need Omar to take care of some business for him. Omar says that he has no problem with that and goes to give Ryan some money, but Ryan lets him have this one as a freebie, and heads off as Omar snorts the drugs. We cut to the hole where Poet, in there following the fight from earlier on and possibly explaining why Briggs hasn't been sent there, although we have had instances in the past of multiple guys being in the hole, is being interviewed by Lisa, claiming hypocrisy at how he's being treated for trafficking illegals, presumably referring to drugs. I do like how Lisa was conducting this interview with Poet just standing there covering his cock and balls. She did say earlier that she wanted Leo's honest reaction, so maybe she just wants things to be as authentic as possible. He says that the staff are more guilty than he ever could be, and that they didn't want them in there when Adebisi was singing, snorting and sucking. He claims that when Adebisi's blood ran out, the truth ran out with it and as a result a wall of lies got built to cover it up, saying that after Saeed killed Adabizi, they acted like he never existed, and that the lies got buried with Adebisi's number. Lisa asks about a cover-up and whether or not Leo might be involved, Poet implying that he is, which is Murphy's cue to try and end the interview. Lisa asks if Poet has any evidence to back up his claims, as Poet once again mentions about the videotape. As we see a flashback to one of Adebisi's wild parties, and he tells Lisa to ask Ryan and Said. as Murphy steps in proper this time to bring things to a close, ushering Lisa and the crew out of the hole before things become worse, and doing so despite Lisa's protestations. Poet continues to claim about being silenced and there being a conspiracy, as Murphy tells him to quiet down and take a nap. Back at the phones, Lisa is on the phone to Jack saying that she's found their story, and that while she's still a little light on the details, she knows that something has happened surrounding the death of an inmate, and that there's videotape evidence. She hangs up saying that the sooner Jack can get there, the better, and heads out to rejoin Murphy, who seems determined to take her down the death row, saying that she's going to love it down there. Lisa, however, wants to go back and re-interview a couple of people again, Murphy telling her okay, but she tells him that she wants to do so privately, which Murphy looks less willing to allow. Continuing to show her ballsy side, Lisa tells him not to worry, and that she'll get the permission she needs as the scene closes. Murphy is caught between a rock and a hard place here. He's trying to deflect the crew away from what they're being told about Adebisi, but he can't make it too obvious that that's what he's doing, which you can see by how he was waiting outside of the room with the phones. Had he been in there, Lisa may have become more suspicious as to why he was listening in on a conversation, so he's got to be careful how he plays things with him leading the crew around the prison as well, he hasn't had the opportunity to alert McManus or Leo to what Poet has told Lisa, something which we see McManus and Leo discussing as Lisa prepares to interview Ryan for a second time. McManus asks what she wants with Ryan, as he wasn't involved with Adam Easy's death, as we see the blinds being closed and Ryan staring at the two of them to close out Act 1. This is another quick scene, and I've got a feeling that we're going to be having quite a lot of these as we go through these next few episodes. A breakneck pace isn't unusual for the show, but this one seems to be a case of boom, 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 onto the next thing, cramming a lot into the episode, the possible reasons for which we spoke of earlier on. She asked to see
0: Saeed and O'Reilly again. What's she want with them? Murphy thinks it might have to do with Adabese's death. But O'Reilly wasn't involved with that. I know.
3: Act 2 gets underway back in the O'Reilly's pod, where Ryan is doing press-ups as Cyril tells him that he misses their mum, asking Ryan why she had to die. Ryan stops his workout to try and think of an answer, saying that he's told Cyril a thousand times that it was due to the cancer. He notices Omar loitering around outside of the pod trying to score some more tits, so tells Cyril to go and watch TV, saying that Miss Sally will be on. Cyril isn't as quick to leave as he has been in the past, even taking a moment to look Omar up and down, perhaps indicative of Cyril getting a bit of an attitude for himself, and maybe even becoming his own person to a certain degree. He does eventually leave, however, which gives Omar the chance to speak with Ryan, and he is indeed after some more tits. Ryan, however, tells him that he hasn't got a never-ending supply, and that Omar is unlucky to have come to Oz now instead of six months ago when Adebizi was running things. Omar asks about what happened, Ryan explaining that Adebizi got shanked, but says that that isn't the point, and that others, or words to that effect, I may have had to clean it up a little, took over the operation, and in his opinion are not doing anywhere near as good a job as before. Omar asks why don't the brothers organise, which I suppose is kind of a callback to Saeed's line from the riot, and Ryan says that they should and that they need a leader, but all that they have right now is Poet, who he calls a fool and a cum stain. Omar lets Ryan in on how he used to run his block, Ryan saying that Omar is the man to step up, with Omar nodding in quiet agreement. Before Omar goes, Ryan gives him a hit of heroin, saying that in order to get anyone's attention, you've got to go large, just like how Adebisi did, describing him as bigger than life and feared by one and all. Omar says that's what he wants, he wants people to fear him, as Ryan tells him that he has to kill somebody to get that kind of respect. Not just anybody, mind you, Omar has to go for a huge monumental kill, maybe even someone famous. Omar asks who that person is, as we cut down to the entrance where Jack Eldridge has arrived at Oz, and he's one of those wankers who can't work out that the metal detector detects metal, and sets it off as he tries to pass through it. As Helen Keating, played here by Cindy Jordan Merrill in her acting debut, tries to sign in to visit with Peter Thorpe, Jack puts his wallet and keys into a tray and walks back through, but sets the machine off again. This time, it's his watch that's setting it off. He complains about them thinking that he's trying to smuggle in a bazooka, but in all fairness, mate, it's called a fucking metal detector. The clue's in the fucking name. Maybe get all your metal things out before you get there, yeah? Despite the alarm going off for a third time, Murphy steps in and tells Tom, the new officer who's working the desk and played by John Corks, that Jack is okay to let him through, Tom telling Jack that he's a huge fan, although Jack doesn't look too impressed at being made to go through the machine over and over, despite it being his fault. So, a couple of people to introduce here with John Cox playing Officer Tom Robson and Roger Rees playing the role of Jack Eldridge. Born December 4th, 1945, in Manhattan, John Cox began acting in theatre, appearing in Little Murders in 1968. Making his film debut in 1970's The Outer Towners, John has mostly appeared in minor roles, appearing on TV in shows such as The Rookies and Starsky and Hutch, as well as the miniseries The Word, while on film he's earned credits for The Front Page, King Cobra, And too much sun. In 1996, John appeared on the Larry Sanders show playing the role of Stu, while in 1999 he made his directing debut on the short film Who Was That Man, before appearing here on Oz. Born May 5th 1944 in Aberystwyth, Wales, Roger Rees moved to Balham in South London at a young age, eventually studying art at the Camberwell College of Arts, as well as the Slade School of Fine Art, where he also studied lithography. Roger's first foray into the acting world came about somewhat by accident, when he was asked to fill in a part in the play Hindle Wakes at the Wimbledon Theatre, where he worked painting set backdrops. Making his TV debut in the Place of Peace in 1975, Roger would also appear, following a number of failed auditions, in the Comedy of Errors the following year for the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon as well as London. Throughout the rest of the 1970s, Roger would continue to work on the theatre stage in productions of Three Sisters, The Suicide and Cymbeline, where he appeared as posthumous in both Stratford and at the National Theatre in London, while in 1975 Roger would make his Broadway debut, appearing in London Assurance at the Palace Theatre. In 1980, Roger starred in the lead role in The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, appearing at London's Aldwych Theatre between 1980 and 1981, before transferring to the Plymouth Theatre on Broadway between September 1981 and March 1982. Despite mixed reviews from critics, the show won six awards at the 1980 Laurence Olivier Awards, with Roger winning the award for Actor of the Year in a new play, as well as awards at the New York Drama Critics Circle Awards and the Tony Awards in 1982, with Roger winning the Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Play Award. Roger also starred in the film adaptation of the play, which clocks in at a massive nine hours, where he was also nominated at the Primetime Emmy Awards following year Roger would make his film debut appearing in Star 80, while in 1984 he appeared on Tales of the Unexpected, as well as an adaptation of A Christmas Carol playing the role of Fred Hollywell, and also acting as the narrator. In 1988 Roger landed the recurring role as Malcolm in ITV's Singles, appearing for 14 of the show's 22 episodes, while in 1989 he became a naturalised US citizen. That same year, Roger gained recognition on US TV, appearing as Robin Colcord for 17 episodes of Cheers on NBC, first appearing during the show's eighth season, with his final appearance coming in 1993 during the show's 11th and final season. Also in 1993, Roger returned to the Broadway stage, appearing in previews of The Red Shoes at the Gershwin Theatre, while in 1995 he appeared with Oz alumni Dana Ivey in Indiscretions at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre. In late 1996 and early 1997, Roger appeared as hero in the rehearsal at Criterion centre stage right, as well as on TV in recurring roles on Boston Common and Liberty the American Revolution, a show narrated by fellow Oz alumni Edward Herman. In 2000, Roger appeared on TV in The Crossing, as well as NBC's The West Wing, where he had the recurring role of Lord John Marbury, as well as the movie Blackmail, where he played the role of Billy Fontaine. Also in 2000, Roger returned to the Broadway stage in Uncle Vanya at the Atkinson Theatre, before appearing here on Oz. Seeming somewhat boorish to his team, Jack gathers them and heads to the gym to conduct his interview with Ryan. He's a bit more cordial with Ryan, rising to his feet and shaking Ryan's hand, as Ryan mentions about how Jack doesn't seem to remember him, Jack saying that unfortunately he doesn't. Ryan says that they met about 20 years ago, which would explain why Jack doesn't recall meeting him, as Ryan says that he must meet so many people through his line of work. Jack asks what the circumstances of the meeting were, but Ryan says that it doesn't matter as the interview gets underway. Jack goes straight in asking where Ryan was when Adebisi died, Murphy looking majorly concerned. He doesn't look as though he's been filled in by McManus or Leo about the possibility of the press asking about Adebisi. Jack asks if there was any inkling as to what was going to happen that day, but Ryan says that Adebisi and Saeed appear to be getting along fine, which on the surface of things is accurate, Saeed did a good job of making it look as though he and Adebisi were on the same page. As Lisa calls for a better shot, Ryan says that he heard a noise come from Adebisi's pod and gives details about what happened that day, mentioning the white curtain, as we also see a flashback of the blood engulfing it. Ryan gives more details as Jack asks whether he knows what led to the fight, but Ryan isn't sure. Jack presses the matter of the white curtain, asking whether or not that was unusual, with Ryan saying that it was, as Jack inquires about whether or not Adebisi was privileged. Ryan takes a moment before answering, turning to Lisa and asking for the cameras to be shut off. She asks what the problem is, but Ryan has decided that this is the chance to try and make some extra money, and says that if they want that kind of information, then they're going to have to pay for it. Jack is proper fucked off at this development, saying that they don't pay informants, as Lisa says that Ryan already agreed to tell them everything in the pre-screen, but Ryan isn't going to tell them anything else right now, saying that Leo is going to be right up his ass like a proctoscope, and all he wants is a little compensation. Jack isn't having any of it, though, and tells everyone to get out, Ryan telling him that it was a pleasure to meet him once again, as Murphy looks relieved that things haven't worked out for the news team. Jack calls Ryan a bastard and demands for someone to find out where he knows Ryan from, and congratulates Lisa on her quote-unquote commendable work before storming off in a huff to close out an extremely short Act 2.
1: Okay, so walk we'll me through this. You were in the room doing nothing, and...
0: I heard this noise from Adabisi's pod, and, and uh, he, he had these white curtains hanging up in the room, and they just went red with blood everywhere, splattered. And then um, Adabisi falls out of the pod, down on the ground, dead... And uh, Said follows out with a, uh, with a shank still in
1: his hand. Well, have you any idea what led to the fight? No. no. You told me there were curtains on the windows of ADBC's pod. Is that unusual? Yes. Was ADBC privileged? Uh, privileged? Well, was he allowed to get away with things the rest of you weren't? <laughs>
0: Excuse me to kill these things sure Dale, guys cut <clears throat>
2: what's the problem
1: you want that kind of knowledge you're going to have to pay oh no, we don't pay informers. then i'm not saying another syllable
2: ryan in the pre-screen you said that you would tell everything you know look i tell it's going to cost me the warden's going to beat my ass like one of them proctoscopes all i'm looking for here is a little compensation
1: no get the fuck out Yourself, Mr. Eldridge. <sighs> Pleasure to see you again. You bastard. Find out where the fuck I know him from. Mr. Eldridge, how am I gonna do that? Well, use your head! I certainly didn't meet O'Reilly at a cocktail party on the Upper East Side. Twenty years ago. I bet I did a story on it. Track it down! Commendable workload. Nice fucking interview.
3: Act 3 sees Jack continuing with interviews, this time meeting with Said in the library. Straight away, Jack is laying on the flattery, saying that it's a pleasure to meet Saeed, and that he's read both of his books, Saeed politely pointing out that he now has three books, the third presumably being the riot book. The two of them admit to a shared admiration, as Jack says that he always felt that Saeed's conviction was politically motivated, and he tells Saeed to just relax and to speak his mind. All of this seems to be a way of luring Saeed into a false sense of security, as the first thing out of Jack's mouth once the cameras start rolling isn't even a question. He flat out states that Saeed murdered Adebisi. A noticeably rattled Saeed tries to deflect the statement, saying that he was defending himself because Adebisi attacked him with a knife. Jack continues to press the issue, asking why Adabezi would attack him, as Saeed explains that he was under the impression that they were going to discuss the conditions in Oz, Saeed still seeming shaken up by Jack's initial statement. Even after a reef mentioning about it being a possibility in the scene earlier on, Saeed should have really been prepared for this. Jack justifies his statement though, asking whether or not brutality and senseless violence form part of the conditions, and asks whether Adebisi's attack was unmotivated. Said still trying to settle himself from his state of panic. But he does say that the attack was in some way motivated, as Jack asks whether or not he said anything to Adebisi to cause it. Having finally composed himself somewhat, although admittedly not that much, Saeed explains that as a Muslim he didn't agree with some of the ways that Adebisi was conducting himself, with Jack asking why did he ask to move into Adebisi's pod if that was the case. The expression on Saeed's face just drops, as Jack produces a form signed by Saeed requesting the change. Jack asks if Saeed hated Adebisi so much, with Saeed pointing out that he didn't hate him, then why live with him, even describing Adebisi as an animal? They continue to argue back and forth, with Saeed rationalising that he was trying to save Adebisi, as Jack says that he ended up killing him, another statement that stops Saeed in his tracks. Jack then asks about the videotape, but as Saeed shakes his head, and as we get another shot of Murphy watching on from the background, he says that he would like to move past this conversation and speak about the wider issue, mentioning that the inmates suffer fundamental civil abuses every day but Jack isn't going to let this slip by, and asks if Saeed is denying the tape's existence. Saeed rises from his chair, the shot showing the news camera's point of view, meaning that we get a lovely view of Saeed's midsection, as Lisa intervenes, telling Saeed that they're only trying to get the facts. Saeed says that part of the story is over, and asks whether or not they understand, and as Adabizi is dead, he's no longer relevant. But Jack tells him that nothing that brings about the death of a man is irrelevant, and if Saeed wants them to hear what he has to say, he has to tell them what they need first, the scene closing with Saeed asking which part will be aired. I thought this was a great little scene, and one in which we see Saeed getting seriously rattled, something which we rarely see, similar to how we saw it happen to Sister Pete previously. We've seen Saeed frustrated or angry before, but we've never seen him in a state of panic before, scrambling to figure out what to do, which as I said before, he really should have been prepared for Adebisi's death being brought up after that scene with aree Saeed's panic is also brought on by how Jack conducts himself in pressing the issue. How he gets there might leave a big question mark over his journalistic integrity, in that he's essentially met with Saeed under the false pretense of discussing the conditions in Oz, but at the end of the day, that's Jack's job. He's a hard-hitting investigative journalist, and Saeed isn't a stranger to meeting with the media. He's done that on several occasions when working his own agenda and knows how things can be edited to get a desired result but in this scene he appears to have met his match in Jack. Murphy heads to McManus' office where he and Leo are waiting, as Murphy tells them that Jack is definitely working the Adebisi angle, not just his death but the circumstances that led up to it, and how Poet is blabbing about the videotapes. McManus floats the idea of pulling the plug on the whole thing, but Leo says that he's already spoken to Devlin and the Commissioner, and that if they back out now they're only going to look worse, which he's right about, pulling the plug now will only arouse suspicion. He also says that since he never told either of them about the videotapes at the time, he certainly can't tell them about them now. Good little soldier McManus says that Leo might have to, and that the truth may have to come out. Murphy and Leo give each other a look, partly showing that they agree with what McManus is saying, although neither seem to want to admit it, but also in knowing that they need to figure out a way to play the news team at their own game. McManus meets with Lisa in the stairwell, which sounds like it could be one of McManus' random romantic trysts, but he's actually there to tell us some things that need to be said, things that he can't say on camera because it will be the end of Leo's career, as well as Devlin having enough of a reason to close down M.C. permanently. Lisa asks what McManus will be willing to say, McManus reaffirming his stance on saying nothing on camera, but as deep background, a term used at top levels of government to disclose information without attribution, he offers up Quern's name saying that he's the man that Lisa needs to go after. Lisa is already aware of who Querns is, mentioning that he ran M-City after McManus, but she also asks about the videotape, and whether or not McManus and Leo have seen it. McManus isn't forthcoming with his answer, saying that Lisa is asking him to betray a friend, Lisa questioning Leo's friendship due to him having fired McManus previously. McManus, however, says that Leo fired him with good reason but he also says that Leo gave Em city back to him when others wouldn't have done, and leaves telling Lisa once again to go after Querns. Bit of a rare moment in this scene where Lisa is acting a bit flirty with McManus to get the information that she wants, but he doesn't go for it. A woman bats her eyelids at him and he actually manages to say no. I think that might be a first for the show. Cut to Leo's office, and as I mentioned in the last episode, despite his firing, we would be seeing Querns again, and he enters seeming somewhat flustered,
2: Leo, what the fuck is going on? I get a call asking me if I'm willing to be interviewed by Jack fucking Eldridge. Well, they found out what went on in M-City when you were in charge. They heard about the videotapes. Fuck. When you asked me to resign, you said no one would ever know the reason that we were going to keep it internal so that neither one of us would get hurt. Refused to do the interview. I did. Fine. Where are the videotapes? In a safe place. What are you keeping them around for? Destroy the tapes, Leo. Destroy the goddamn motherfucking tapes, now!
3: So, a couple of things in this scene that seem to have been retconned from when we last saw Querns. He says to Leo about when he asked him to resign, it would all be kept internal so that neither man got hurt. That seems to have been a development off-screen, as obviously we saw Leo fire Querns in the last episode, and had him escorted off the premises. If that's the case, then you've got to wonder whether or not Quern's firing was simply a show for McManus to see, and that Leo's secretly still been talking with Querns in the meantime. Querns also points out a huge flaw in the logic here, asking why Leo has kept the tapes around. Yeah, why have you held on to those, Leo? Especially for six bloody months? If you were going to try and cover up Adebezi's death, destroying the tapes should have been the first thing that you did six months ago. This just makes Leo look like a fucking idiot. We see Leo destroying the tapes, putting them through a meat mincer in the kitchen, and I'm wondering why we haven't seen that used in an act of violence on the show yet. Having destroyed the evidence, Leo heads to the bathroom for some relief, but he runs into Jack, who mentions that Leo has cancelled their interview and asks why. Leo tells him that he can ask, but he won't answer. Jack says that Leo can answer off the record, seeing as they're just two guys stood at the urinal holding their dicks. Leo saying that he spent too much time in front of the camera when he was running for Lieutenant Governor, with Jack saying, off the record of course, that that's bullshit and goes to wash his hands. Jack asks how many years Leo has spent at Oz, Leo simply saying that it's too many. Jack asks that despite that, would it bother Leo to leave, whether that's by quitting or being forced out due to some sort of indiscretion, that being some sort of mishandling of the job being exposed on TV. Leo puts his dick away and turns to face Jack, saying that he's spent his entire life punishing people, having made some choices that were good, and some that have led to violence. He admits that lives have been lost, and that he wonders whether he could have stopped the carnage. Jack asks whether or not Leo thinks he could have prevented Adebisi's death, as Leo takes a moment to think it over before eventually saying yes, and that balls out truth he should be fired because of it, but that he's afraid that whoever they bring in to replace him will only end up being worse. He says that reaching this point is a terrible thing, realising that your whole life has been a sham, Jack making the point that Leo punishes himself more than those he's meant to punish, with Leo offering no comment, despite it being off the record. This is probably one of Ernie Hudson's best scenes on the show. It might be similar to the one in which he explained to Clayton about the day on which Sam died, but you get a real sense of how Leo carries around each tragedy that occurs at Oz with him ultimately blaming himself for everything that happens. Ernie Hudson, when he gets the chance to lead a scene, can be captivating to watch, especially with that velvet-smooth voice of his. Jack meets back up with his team and tells Lisa that the Adabisi story is a dead end, as Augustus narrates about how journalists are supposed to be impartial, we also get Tom thinking that Jack Eldridge is Tom Brokaw to close out Act 3. Lisa? What?
1: The, uh, ADBC story. It's a dead end.
3: What?
2: Jack, no.
1: My instincts told me that none of the principals are gonna come forward with the facts.
2: But we faced tougher resistance than this before. I can get McManus to
1: There are people who do things for malicious reasons. This prison is full of them. I don't think Leo Glynn, is one. He's uh, imperfect, but he's not incompetent.
2: That is no reason not to expose what happened here. A man died. Yeah,
1: from all appearances, a bad man.
2: Oh, you're making judgments now? What, Simon Adebisi's life is not as important as the Pope's? Don't get
1: high-minded with me. I've brought presidents, serial killers, corporate giants to their knees.
2: And now's not the time to go soft.
1: I'm going home. Big day tomorrow.
2: You're making a mistake, Jack. Letting the story go is a... Fucking mistake!
1: Yeah, probably. But, um, you know, every once in a while, even a newsman has to have a heart. Hey, can I have your autograph, Mr. Brokaw?
2: What a dick.
0: Journalists are supposed to be impartial. They're supposed to keep their personal opinions to themselves. However, on TV, we know what the reporter is feeling. We see Sam Donaldson or Andrew Mitchell giving us the facts, but with the camera that close up, we can also tell by a raised eyebrow, by a tiny inflection, what they really think about the person who they're reporting on. Now, Walter Cronkite, he had the poker face. Nobody ever knew what old Walt was thinking. So while he was telling the truth, he was also lying to the camera. That's genius!
3: Act 4 then sees us in the kitchen with, oh fucking hell, it's Omar again. This time he's thanking Ryan for having pulled some strings to get him a job in the kitchen. Ryan tells him that it's no problem, and beckons him over to give Omar some more drugs, this time in the form of a duster cigarette. Ryan mentions that he's heard that Omar is the lucky one who's going to spend the night in a cell with Jack, Omar saying that he's going to be a TV star much like Martin Lawrence or Bart Simpson. That line seemed a little out of place to me because I only really know Martin Lawrence from the limited number of films that I've seen him in, and believe me, that is a very short list. But looking it up, it turns out that Martin Lawrence got his start on TV, appearing in What's Happening Now, and he also had his own successful sitcom on Fox simply titled Martin, which ran for five seasons between 1992 and 1997. Of course, you don't need me to tell you who Bart Simpson is, the Simpsons was probably still one of the biggest shows in the world at this time, although I would say that it had definitely passed its creative peak by now and was in its 12th season at this point. The latest episode of the show, broadcast on the same night as this as a matter of fact, was Homer, spelled H-O-M-R in block capitals, which is the one where Homer's intelligence increases after having a crayon removed from his brain. It seems to be considered something of a classic episode for that era, and according to viewing figures, it had 18.5 million watching, which I find very hard to believe. But outside of a good line about extended warranties, I can't remember a whole lot about it. Omar says thank you for the drugs and says that there's some good shit as Ryan continues to talk about Jack, saying that he just hopes that Jack doesn't disrespect Omar, and that yesterday he apparently overheard Jack telling somebody that Omar was gay. Outraged by this accusation, Omar starts to shout about it as Ryan tries to calm him down, saying that the media love to twist things around, and how they don't give a fuck about the truth so long as they get to tell their story and boost their ratings. Twisting things further, Ryan tells Omar that the tabloid press are saying that Jack is gay too, something which Omar has apparently heard somewhere before, with Ryan saying that to cover his shame, Jack is apparently going to skunk Omar on national TV. Omar looks terrified at whatever the hell skunking is, and judging by the look on his face, I'm not sticking that in my search history in order to find out, as Chucky makes his way around the corner, telling Ryan that the eggs aren't going to fry themselves, and tells him to get back to work. Before Ryan goes, though, he tells Omar that if he was him, he'd teach Jack a thing or two about being a real man when they're alone in the pod together. Cut to the reception, where Jack arrives having still not worked out that the metal detector detects metal. There's a frosty atmosphere between himself and Lisa stemming from their prior disagreement regarding the Adebisi story, but they don't dwell on it for too long as Jack asks about what they've been able to find out about Ryan and this supposed meeting they had 20 years earlier. Horowitz tells Jack that he did a piece on urban gangs back when Ryan was 16 years old, which at first I was like, no fucking way is Ryan 36 here, but that is how old Dean Winters was at the time, so it does line up. He tells Jack that he interviewed Cyril at the time too and hands him some transcripts of the piece and he's brought enough for everyone as he tries to hand Lisa a copy but she says that she doesn't have time to read it and asks whether or not Jack made them look bad. Having reviewed the tape Horowitz says that the O'Reillys came off looking pretty brutal, even heartless at times, as Jack says that he wants to see the tape. The gates open and Murphy beckons them in to begin the day's shooting. And we only get a very quick shot of it, but I love how Jack is all suited and booted apart from his tennis shoes. Microphones and cameras are being set up in the pod as Murphy explains that at 5 o'clock the inmates are locked down until Lights Out, which happens at 9 o'clock, a change from the early episodes of the show when Lights Out used to come at 10. While most people probably think that's a bit early for Lights Out, I'd be fine taking the extra hour to sleep if I'm totally honest. If I can get bedded down and comfy and get an extra 60 minutes, I'm totally cool with that. As Chico passes by en route to his pod, he calls Lisa his Sita, although Murphy doesn't give him the chance to ask if she wants some Latino heat, telling him to keep it in his pants and to keep moving. Murphy and Lisa share an eye roll, as we see Omar and Ryan making their way to their pods. Omar goes from placid to absolute rage in nanoseconds once he spots Jack, as Ryan tries to calm him down, but Omar says that that bitch is mine and storms up the stairs. He calls for Jack's attention and stands in front of the pod doorway as Murphy gets between Omar and Jack, asking Omar what his problem is. Omar calls Jack the problem and also grabs a camera from the pod, leading to Jack retreating to safety as Murphy and Menio grab Omar to try and restrain him. As they struggle, Omar cuts the palm of Menio's hand with a blade. Omar stabs forward frantically as Murphy calls for backup, as well as for the unit to be locked down. Murphy repeatedly calls for Omar to drop the shank, the same as he did to Said six months ago, but Omar doesn't cooperate, and eventually the sort make their way up the stairs, with two of them tackling Omar to the ground as Ryan looks concerned. Even he seems to be thinking that maybe he's gone too far this time in causing Omar to fly off the handle like this. I've mentioned before about how the more things change, the more they stay the same, and we get a prime example of that here as even six months on from Adebisi's death, Oz, and M-City in particular, are still rife with violent activity. I loved how this scene played out in front of what used to be Adebisi's pod, though, mirroring the brutality that occurred at the end of the previous episode, only this time they were lucky that no one died. The show has pretty much stayed away from elements of the supernatural, at least up until now, but throughout this episode, and coupled with how Ryan was describing him to Omar earlier on, it's as though Adebisi's spirit continues to live within M-City tormenting the staff from beyond the grave due to them covering up the killing. Jack and Lisa meet with Murphy, McManus, and Leo, who is pissed off at what's transpired. With everything up in the air, Jack makes a proposal that might solve everyone's issues.
2: This is exactly why I didn't want you here in the first place. I think at the very least, you ought to postpone. No. I postpone, you mean never reschedule.
0: Our concern is for your safety, Mr. Eldridge I've been
2: at this
1: game a long time I can take care of myself So we're going to go ahead with it tonight You're going to sleep in a cell
2: Yes, but of course now we have to find someone else to match up with Jack
0: Well, we could, uh, we could put you in a cell alone
1: Ted Koppel did that on Nightline It was complete horseshit. Then who? I've been reading the files on the yes. O'Reilly brothers uh, The younger one, uh, uh, Cyril He's now brain damaged and under medication to control his actions I choose him
3: that line referencing Ted Koppel in Nightline is a reference to ABC's Crime and Punishment series, where on August 27, 1998, in episode 4 of the series, Ted spent 12 hours in a cell at the W.J. Estelle unit, also known as the Estelle Supermax Penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. While McManus is probably just trying to find a middle ground in which the team are able to do their story but without putting Jack at risk, Jack calling the idea horseshit is quite frankly right. Said couple did spend 12 hours inside a cell, but he did it in solitary confinement, which gives Jack's idea the edge, as the danger is up significantly by being in a cell with an inmate. He's not stupid, though, He selected very carefully who that inmate is going to be, and has selected Cyril. What could be his undoing, though, may be that he is underestimating Cyril due to his mental capacity. Cyril is still an inmate in a maximum security prison, after all. There's a very real possibility that this isn't going to be what Jack thinks it might be. Ryan collars McManus on the way to his office, saying that he refuses to have Cyril involved with the story. McManus tells him that he doesn't have a choice in the matter, and neither does Ryan, and for the love of God let's just try and make it through the night. Ryan storms out of the office telling McManus to say a rosary, as we then see Jack with Lisa in the computer room, with McManus preparing for the night ahead. McManus tells Jack that he wishes he would allow the sort team to be there. Why can't anyone get that right? The T stands for team, there's no need to say sort team, as Jack says that he wants it to be just like any other typical night, and he's escorted to his pod by Murphy. Keller and Liam watch on from their pod as Jack is led up the stairs by Murphy, as we also get a shot of Said watching on from his pod. Murphy gives the okay for the pod door to be opened, and Jack makes his way inside, as we pan across to where Ryan is trying to angle himself to see what's going on, but as he has that pod that's on an angle in the corner, He can't see inside. He looks over to Liam, who looks as though he's going to be able to keep an eye on things for Ryan from his pod, as we go back to Cyril and Jack. Introducing himself, Jack says hello to Cyril, who returns the favour, but he also seems to be having some blurry flashbacks of a newsman sticking a microphone in his face. Lisa asks if Jack is ready as the camera adjusts and Jack preps himself by clearing his throat, something which he's done a number of times in this episode. It's very important that you get those vocal cords ready, let me tell you. Apparently Lisa is able to communicate with Jack, but he doesn't seem to be wearing an earpiece, so presumably she's coming through some kind of speaker and Cyril is able to hear her too. It's all a bit weird. Jack starts doing his piece towards camera, fluffing it to begin with, showing that even a professional needs to do two takes from time to time, explaining that he's already been locked up for the night, even though it's only 5pm. Describing his surroundings, he says that the pod is about the size of the average American bathroom, and that it smells like one too. Cyril looks on confused as Jack continues to talk to the camera, eventually asking who he's talking to. Jack tells Cyril that he wants him to ignore the camera, as Cyril has more blurry flashbacks. The filming continues with Jack asking Cyril what he does before lights out, Cyril answering that he just waits for the lights to go out, which is about as spot-on an answer as you can get, really. It's not like there's much else he can do. Jack gets Cyril to change position and asks him what else, as Cyril says that he says his prayers and sleeps, and every now and again he keeps turning to look towards the camera, Jack continuously having to bring him back to face him. And the whole thing plays out with a mixture of the camera work that we're used to, as well as point-of-view shots from the news team's cameras. Jack asks Cyril what he prays for, Cyril saying that he prays to Jesus that Ryan will be safe, and also mentions his Aunt Brenda. Who we met back in series 3. He also says that he hopes that his dad will smile and that they take care of his mum in heaven. As they talk about Cyril's mum dying, Cyril says that he hates hospitals and starts to wander around the pod, but Jack pulls him back into position for the camera shot. For somebody who wants things to be as authentic as possible, Jack sure seems to like structure. Cyril continues to talk about his dislike of hospitals, saying that he dislikes the smell of them as well as the medicine. He says that Ryan tries to make sure that he takes his medication, but sometimes, such as today, he doesn't. A look of terror covering Jack's face. Clearly not understanding how angles work, Ryan continues to try and get to one so that he can see inside of Cyril's pod, but he has to resort to using hand signals with Liam to gauge whether or not everything's okay. The news team watch on as Murphy begins to fall asleep. Clearly this is going to be a riveting piece when it hits the airwaves, as Jack asks Cyril about his accident asking whether or not he remembers anything prior to it. Cyril says that he has flashes every once in a while. In fact, he's having one right now, saying that he sees Jack and that he thinks that he knows him. Jack tells Cyril that they met many years ago, as we see more blurry flashbacks of the O'Reilly brothers when they were young, which sees their mum slap young Ryan across the face as young Cyril smashes the TV using a chair. As we fade back to the present day, Cyril says that Jack made his mum sad and also made her cry. He then says that Jack gave his mum cancer and punches Jack with a hard right hand, Jack stumbling back towards the pod glass. Murphy calls for backup, the second time this episode he's had to call in a Code 66, as Cyril continues to beat on Jack, recalling how Ryan told him at their mother's graveside that Jack gave her cancer. Liam bangs on his pod glass to get Ryan's attention, as Cyril continues to pound away on Jack's face, repeating his claims of Jack giving his mother cancer. The sort run in and drags Cyril away as Ryan calls out for his brother, with Cyril calling out not only for his brother, but for his mum as well. Lisa attends to Jack, who is a bloody mess and appears to have a broken jaw, but his main concern is whether or not Lisa managed to get the whole thing on tape. Augustus narrates about television having the power to enlighten, as well as inform, and also mentions the miracle that God gave to Lazarus to be able to rise from the dead, which sees Augustus rise from his chair, as we also get a news report updating us on Jack's condition, Jack having suffered a severe concussion, as well as four broken ribs and a punctured lung. As Murphy, McManus and Leo watch the report on a tiny TV in Leo's office, the reporter says the network has decided to pull the series of reports on Oz, despite Lisa's objections. The three of them look relieved as we're told that Lisa has resigned in protest, as Leo turns off the TV to close the episode. You made mama sad.
2: You made mama cry. You gave my mama cancer. Oh Holy shit! Central this is 11. We got a 66. Ryan
0: grave and you gave my mother cancer. No! No! You gave my mama cancer! Jack. Oh, did you,
1: Lisa, did you? What, did I what? Get it all on tape. Hand, come on,
0: me. Television has the power to enlighten, to inform, to lay the bare truth before the eyes of the public. Television is an extraordinary gift, as much a miracle from God as Lazarus rising from the dead. But do we use the gift wisely? Have we ever?
2: News anchor Jack Eldridge became a part of his own story yesterday, as what many industry insiders called a rating stunt backfired. Convicted murderer Cyril O'Reilly brutally beat Eldridge, causing the veteran reporter to suffer a severe concussion, four broken ribs, and a punctured lung. He remains at Benchley Memorial in critical condition. Despite the objections of Eldridge's producer, Lisa Logan, the network has decided not to air what was intended to be a three-part series on life inside Oswald's maximum security prison. The Emmy and Peabody Award-winning Logan resigned in protest. We all wish Jack a speedy recovery.
3: So there you go, Series 4, Episode 9, Medium Rare, and Series 4B is not off to the best of stars. I wouldn't say that this is the weakest episode of the show, Some of the world-building episodes in Series 1 are probably weaker in hindsight, but this was a major letdown coming off of where we left things in the previous episode. But my main bugbear is how Saeed seems to be a complete afterthought. Granted, we're six months on from Adebisi's death, and in a lot of ways M-City has reverted back to its former self in the wake of that, but Saeed and how he was coping with having killed a man should have been the focus of the episode. Instead, we got a single line of dialogue about how it was found that Saeed was defending himself and he doesn't seem to have faced any further punishment, and Saeed barely featured in the episode. I'm not saying that we needed scenes of Saeed having a full mental breakdown or anything like that, but for someone who was previously so opposed to violence, and especially towards killing his fellow man, we don't see the scenes of Saeed coming to terms with what happened. In the last episode, in the immediate aftermath of the fight with Adebisi, we saw him struggle with what he'd done as Murphy asked him to drop the blade, knowing that he'd taken a life and that his now hung in the balance as he was looking at a potential death penalty. But here, we didn't get any of that. Instead, we got a self-contained story of Leo McManus having covered up the killing by holding on to the videotapes, an action which makes them look like a pair of fucking idiots, and a lot of focus put on the incoming Omar White. Said barely features at all. Ideally, this whole story of the news team coming in to film their series would have played out over a number of episodes, rather than just being over and done with in this one episode, much like how Alva Case's investigation at the start of Series 2 could have done with having some more time to breathe. I don't want to sound like I'm being harsh, I've talked about the production issues that the show was dealing with, and we'll talk about them a lot more as we go on, but this episode is just a bit of a mess. Basil admitted to murdering someone in the last episode, as well as having taken drugs. There's no follow-up there. Beecher and Keller are pushed into the background and have very little progression to their storyline. Devlin is six months on from having been shot by Clayton. There's no mention of either of them. Supreme Allah is nowhere to be seen. And it appears that no one, nobody amongst this rogues gallery of some of the worst men in America, has tried to become the top dog in M-City in the last six months. Even in this very episode, Morales talks about getting the news team's attention somehow. That's introduced and then never mentioned again. And with the news team now not returning to Oz, that has no payoff. Even the structure of this episode seems to be way off from what we're used to. You can usually split episodes into four acts. Sometimes it might be one either side of that, but more often than not it can be done in four. But when writing this episode, I struggled to decide where to make those splits. Act 1 seemed to cover the entire first half of the episode, and even after I made a decision on that, Act 2 seemed to then be really short. With the introduction of Omar and how he was used throughout the episode, we seemed to bounce around and come back to him on occasion, rather than the usual structure of having his part play out, and then come back to him again in a follow-up episode. I use IMDB ratings in the introduction of episodes, and I know that isn't necessarily a barometer of quality but I'd say that giving this episode an 8.4 has been extremely generous. Is it the worst opening episode to a series? Probably not, but it may be my least favourite episode of the show so far. The most interesting thing coming out of it is how things are going to unfold for Cyril, as this is just the latest instance of him getting into a violent confrontation. Only this time it isn't just confined to Inside the Walls of Oz and involving another inmate. It's in the hands of the media and involves a member of the public something which may come back to bite, or then again judging by how we just skipped over the immediate fallout of Adebisi's death, maybe it won't. Get the fuck out of Just the one deleted scene to discuss for this episode, which sees Ryan trying to find out who Jack is spending the night with. Augustus doesn't have any information other than it isn't him. Rebido says that it's been determined by a lottery, with Boosmal is reckoning that it'll be the person with the least violent record, Beecher pointing out that that leaves Ryan out of the running. A great little bitchy comment from Beecher there. Ryan gives Beecher the finger, saying that he doesn't want the job anyways, and then heads up to Keller to see if he knows, Keller telling Ryan that it's going to be Omar. Menio shoes them along to get into their pods, with Ryan asking him whether or not he needs a fresh tampon as the scene closes. Bit of a nothing scene this one, it doesn't add anything to the scene that we got between Ryan and Omar in the kitchen. If it was going to be used, it was just going to be padding out the runtime, which, a little over 52 minutes, including both sets of credits, I think makes this the shortest episode of the show so far. Having an inmate chosen by lottery could have been fun to see, maybe we could have had a tombola in Leo's office or something. But yeah, nothing much to talk about with this one. No deaths in this episode, so we've no one to say goodbye to on that front, but it was a busy night down at the Oz One and Done Club, Don Pardo's voice and Arthur for Kit featured in guest starring roles in the first appearance of Up Your Auntie, while Michael Potts and David Laundrie appeared as background characters as part of Jack's news team. We also say goodbye to Justin Hagen as Horowitz the Researcher, with Cindy Jordan Merrill getting some brief airtime as an inmate's visiting relative. Our main two new members of the Oz 1 and Dunn Club, though, are Roger Reese as Jack Eldridge, and Ali Sheedy as Lisa Logan. Although this is the only time that we'll see him on screen as Jack Eldridge, Roger Rees isn't finished with the show just yet, so I'll discuss his post-Oz career in a future episode. Having resigned in protest at the end of the episode due to disagreements with her employers, this is the last that we'll see of Ali Sheedy as Lisa Logan, though. After appearing on Oz, Ali appeared in the lead in the TV movie The Warden, playing the lead role of Helen Hewitt, and a movie which also featured an appearance by Oz alumni, Roger Gwenda Smith. In 2002, Ali appeared on TV in Once and Again and in the Interrogation of Michael Crow, while on film she appeared in the movies Just a Dream and Happy Here and Now. Working steadily over the next couple of years on both TV and film, Ali would make her Broadway debut in 2005, appearing in the 24-hour plays at the American Airlines Theatre on October 24th, with Oz alumni Catherine Erby also appearing in one of the show's productions. Also in 2005, Ali along with her Breakfast Club co-stars Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald, were awarded with the Silver Bucket of Excellence at the MTV Movie Awards, which I think is kind of like a Lifetime Achievement Award, but for a specific film. 2008 was a mixed bag of a year for Ali, divorcing from David Lansbury, while also earning the recurring role of Sarah on ABC Family's Kyle X.Y. Between 2009 and 2013, Ali appeared as Yang on Psych for the USA Network, while in 2010 she was nominated along with her co-stars in Life During Wartime for Best Ensemble Performance at the Gotham Independent Film Awards. In 2016, Ali appeared in the movie Little Sister, and made a cameo appearance in X-Men Apocalypse. In 2022, Ali appeared as Carol Fink in the TV series Single Drunk Female, while at the time of recording her latest acting credit is listed as being for the movie Chantley Bridge, a follow-up to 1993's Chantley Lace, with Ali reprising her role as Elizabeth, which is currently listed as being in post-production. Having made history a couple of episodes back when handing out the first ever joint episode MVP, this was also very close to being a history-making episode, in that I very nearly gave the award to nobody. However, after much deliberation, I'm going to give the award to Lisa for her ballsy attitude and determination in trying to uncover the suspicious circumstances surrounding Adbezi's death. There's a power dynamic between her and Jack that makes you side with Lisa, Much like Lisa, Jack has an attitude to him, but it's Lisa's work that gets him into the position to be able to ask those hard-hitting questions, certainly in the scene with Saeed. His hard-hitting style might get him ratings, but it's Lisa who convinces Jack to run with the Adebisi story, saving us from following Omar around for the day and seeing more of him being an annoying fuck. While for a moment it did look as though she was going to try and use some feminine charm to get the story out of McManus, she did show a tough exterior when meeting with the inmates, especially when Jazz whipped his dick out in front of her. So for those reasons, Lisa wins the episode MVP, although admittedly there was very little on offer from anybody else to trouble her for the award. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media where you can get all the updates about the podcast by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. Next time on Inside Oz, if you're someone who's tried a number of religions trying to find the one for you, then you've probably made more than your fair share of Series 4 Episode 10 conversions, When McManus implements some new ideas, Leo gets a new assistant, someone from Augustus' past as well as a number of other new faces arrive in M-City, while a familiar face makes their long-awaited return to Oz. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone.